Hello listeners, welcome to season two, episode three of Past Matters, the podcast that asks museums, galleries and historic houses what their most underrated objects are. Now, last week's episode reminded you to look down when visiting historic houses, and in symmetry that would have pleased Robert Adam, and if you listened in last week you'll get the reference, this one asks you to look up. Keep listening to hear Claire Goff, director at the Pitshanger Manor and Gallery in West London, talk about not one, not two, but three special ceilings at what was the country home of the famous neoclassical architect Sir John Soane. Innovative restoration tricks, beauty and family fallouts await in this episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying these, do leave a review or come and follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and leave comments. I'd love to hear more of your feedback. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast episode, Claire. Such a pleasure. Um, so to, for our listeners, perhaps you could introduce yourself and Pitts Hanger Manor. Of course. So my name is Claire Goff and I am director of Pitts Hanger Manor and Gallery. Pitts Hanger is the architect Sir John Stone's country house. And it's funny saying country house these days because it's based in Ealing in West London, very much part of London. But of course, when Stone built it, in 1800, Ealing was a village in the country. And um, he, he was about 46 when he built it, and he wanted to have a house to use to show off to his friends and clients what he could do for them. So it is a beautifully newly restored um, Regency house built by John Stone in the rather eccentric manner that John Stone has, demonstrating all of his different architectural styles. But immediately adjacent to it, we've also got a contemporary art gallery where we put on a programme of exhibitions designed to cast a new light on um, on the manor and set up an interesting dialogue, a bit of a conversation between the manor and the contemporary art. That sounds like a pretty cool contrast. So for, for people who might not be quite so familiar with who Sir John Soane was, perhaps you could uh, chat a bit about him? Absolutely. So, so John Soane um, was an architect born in 1753. Um, Fairly humble origin. His sort of first job was as a hot carrier for a, for a builder. But he won a scholarship from the Royal Academy to go off and do a grand tour to um, France and Italy. And on that grand tour, just got blown away by the classical architecture he saw. And that radically affected his style. And when he came back to England, he built himself an amazing reputation as an eccentric architect with a very particular style. And I think that's why so many years after his death, he remains so popular and so influential on, on um, architects and designers today. So much of what he did was so ahead of his time. Um, he's famous for having built Bank of England, but very sadly, much of what he did at the Bank of England was subsequently modified. Um, and so there's not a huge amount of his architecture that um, remains. And that's why it's been so exciting to be able to restore and conserve Pitsangaman and bring it back to exactly how it was in um, in John Stone's time. But one of the things he's most famous for is for his very decorative interiors, decorative um, paint schemes um, on the interiors, but also his use of light within a building. And those are fun things that are demonstrated beautifully at Pitsanger. Oh, okay. And, and you say it's been restored. When, when was the manor reopened, I guess? So, so we went to a three-year, twelve million restoration project um, that finally finished in March last year. So in March two thousand and nineteen, we reopened to the public um, so that people could see for the very first time um, in in about one hundred and fifty years. 
same house as it was as he had designed it, which was really exciting. Mm. But but you existed as a museum before that point, but it just didn't look quite the same. Well, before that point, it had been in private hands for many years until 1900. And then in 1900, the house and its surrounding parkland um, was sold to the council. And so the council made the parkland into a public park, which is there today as Walpole Park, beautiful park, greatly enjoyed by many people today. And they said, what do we do with a house like this? And they turned it into a library. So from 1900 until 1980, um, the house is actually used as the library. But in the 1980s, um, they wanted to build a, a purpose-built library, so it moved out. And at long last, um, the house was open to the public. But that was before a major conservation project. And I think the challenge was that so much had happened to the house over those years. It had been extended against, it had been painted over. Some of the elements of the design that Sarah put in, amazing roof light, amazing conservatory, those have been lost over time. So it was actually really difficult to read Zone in the building. It had really lost its soul. And so really it's only since this last conservation project, so since the opening in 2019, that the house really got its soul back again. And you can really see why it was such a masterpiece of design by John Zone. Mm. Mm, and I, I guess his his main house was in London, or yes, yes. So he, um, when he built Pitsanger in eighteen hundred, he had one townhouse in Lincoln's and Fields. And as I said before, he wanted to build this country house to sort of show off to his clients what he could do. And so he came and did that and um, built what was actually his dream house here. I very much had a vision. It was going to be the dynastic home of of the family of Soane architects. But tragically, Soane fell out with his son terribly badly, so badly that the stress of it made his wife sick. And so his wife, Eliza, put a huge amount of pressure on Soane to sell Pitsanger so that they could be based entirely at their London home. So in 1810, so soon after he built Pitsanger, they upped and left Pitsanger, brought all of their content, all of the, the, the sort of insides of the house, brought them back to Lincoln Fields where he had this, this townhouse. And slowly over time, he then developed two further townhouses. And those together, those three townhouses in Lincoln Fields, um, became his home and, and today are the Sir John Museum. So it's rather fun. You've got this comparison between um, the townhouse in Lincoln Fields and the country house at Pitsanger. That's so sad that, you know, a big falling out happened and oh. that, you know, they left the dream home <laughs> yeah no heartbreaking heartbreaking i think john Soane was a classic genius you know he was absolutely brilliant and so many of his designs have been so influential for so many people but i think he was also quite a complex man and probably quite difficult to live with um, <laughs> as most that... geniuses are i imagine <laughs> yeah yeah and he made that terrible mistake of telling his two boys what they were going to be when they grew up, which was architects. And I think we all know that that's never, <laughs> never, never the best idea. And I'm afraid it backfired terribly badly. What, what, what did they become instead if they didn't become architects? Well, there's a very, very sad story about one of his sons. So um, in 1802, so bought four pits, and he bought this wonderful series of paintings by Hogarth, by William Hogarth, um, A Rake's Progress, which tells the story of uh, a young man in London who inherits rather a lot of money and then spends it and wastes it very badly. And it tells the story of his decline through brothels and madhouses and dens of iniquity. And unfortunately, that painting 
1802 was rather prophetic for what would happen to um, one of Seine's sons, who indeed ends up in a debt of prison, has a menage a trois, you know, all sorts Ooh. of terrible things go on. So, so it, was, it was an unfortunate purchase in many senses, a wonderful series of paintings, but, but too closely um, anticipated what would happen to his son. Wow. What happened to the other one? So the other one died young, but again, alienated from his son. So, so one of the sons, and, and, and I think this was the final blow that, that estranged them completely, one of the sons wrote um, a terribly critical public letter about his father and his architecture. And his wife, Eliza, actually felt that that was her, it was actually her death now, and so he always held that against his son. So he disinherited them. And, you know, it's, it's a tragic tragic story of family breakdown and 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 not reunited oh well it seems it seems at odd with what is a very beautiful building it is and i think it's very interesting so even after so left Pitsanger, it clearly kept a very sort of special place in his heart and long after he left it he carried on commissioning images of it and writing about it so i think it, it, it represents a very happy time in his life where he had so much hope and expectation both for himself, his family. He had to work quite hard to get his career to come off because he didn't come from a very affluent background. He had to work particularly hard to generate clients. And, and I think Pittsburgh represents a time when he had just felt he'd made it, made his reputation and was, his business was going very well and he had great expectations for his family. And so I think it always held a very warm place in his heart as that moment of the dream of, of where he thought everything was going to be perfect. So how many years did he actually have it for then? So he had it for 10 years, from 1800 to 1810, and, uh, you know, had uh, used it a lot for entertainment during that time. It was a big party house. They had big dinner parties there, huge garden parties. We've got a camp of wonderful garden parties of 200 people um, outside in the beautiful parkland. Um, and he used to bring a lot of friends there. He used to go fishing a lot with friends and clients in the parkland. So he, um, you know, he loved, he loved using it. Um, but, yes, they're very sad that it all... And so everything, he also used the house to show off his growing collection. And he was a wonderful collector, very diverse collector. He collected everything from what was, to him, contemporary art, um, back to antiquities from ancient Greece and, and Rome and lots of things in between. And um, he used a bit more space to show these things off and used Pitsanger to do that. And in fact, even designed some of the rooms at Pitsanger around his growing collection. But when he moved back in 1810, everything that he had bought for, uh, for Pitsang and showed there, including those paintings I mentioned that were Rake's Progress, were um, transported back to his London home, so to Lincoln Fields. In fact, you can see those there now, today, in the, in the John Stone Museum, which is rather wonderful. So we can some, see some of the things that were at Pitsang there. Okay, so in terms of what visitors can see when they come to the manor now, what what sort of things are there, and what what tends to be the most popular items? Yeah, so so the manor is um, is really a showcase for his architectural skills now, and what is lovely about it is the fact that they sort of saw it as a walk in walk in portfolio for um, to show off to clients what he could do. So each room is quite different and quite different styles. And I think the fun about the house, because we have carefully chosen not to fill it with furniture again, is to enable people to really see his architectural design ideas. And such an integral part of his architecture was his interior decorations, so the decorative schemes 
that he put in each of the rooms. So the fantastically painted walls that he does um, in the rooms and how he plays with light through um, roof lights and, and through the conservatory and he inserts stained glass in the conservatory and in some of the roof lights and so he gets wonderful dappled effect of, 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 of puddles of, 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 of coloured light oh, on the floor as the, as the sun moves around. It's <laughs> absolutely lovely. So I think those are the things that people really enjoy. They enjoy the sort of sense of, of, of the spaces and, um, uh, and the decoration that he's put into them. And then of course we have an exhibition gallery next door and so people also get drawn by um, opened with Anish Kapoor and then since had an exhibition by Ed Devlin so they get attracted by those exhibitions which we hope always have a very strong connection with the house and, and, and there's a very obvious reason why the two sit well together. Is it, was he quite pioneering in his use of light in architecture? Because I think in my yeah. head, I always think, you know, if you go back in time, you know, beautiful homes were still quite enclosed, whereas... Yes, yeah. yes, no, absolutely, absolutely. And and people often say as, as that he used light as an architectural tool and it's lovely how he plays with it, whether it be direct light from outside or whether it be the play of mirrors in the house and we've got a wonderful couple of rooms where he sets up one of those sort of infinity mirror arrangements so you can you can look into the mirror and you get your reflection behind you and um and things like that so that um that's absolutely lovely um in terms of how modern he is one of the features of the house that had disappeared over time before we did the conservation was this amazing conservatory that he built and it was standing in fact right up until 1901 when the council built but bought the house but um, it was taken down then, and we assume for whatever people used to call health and safety of those days, I suspect they're probably a bit worried about maintenance of it. But we had the original plans for it, and so we've been able to reconstruct the conservatory exactly as it was. And when I take visitors in to see it, and I show them a plan that she actually didn't execute, which was to make the, the, the conservatory double height. In fact, it's only single height. But I show them that, and I say, do you really think this looks like a design from 1804? And everybody's blown away. They think it looks like 1920s, 1960s, something much, much more modern. But um, they, they can't believe that it was 1804. So it's just a sign of sort of, you know, how how ahead of his time. And I think that's another reason why Sony is so popular as an architect who um, um, influences artists and designers today, mm. uh, because he was so, so ahead of his time. Yeah, yeah, it's very, you know, all modern interiors now are all about, you know, more light, more light, more yeah. windows, more mirrors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's particularly good mm. at making use of roof lights mm. to um, light his room. So he's, he's very famous... Um, as having designed Dulwich Picture Gallery, which was the first ever um, purpose-built art gallery um, in in the UK, I did not um, know a that. lovely gallery, mm. and in, in that the, the the roof lights play a really important role, and they're very similar to to, to the designs and styles we see at Pitt Hanger. And of course, the reason why he wanted roof lights was to enable the pictures to be enjoyed in natural light, but without ruining the, the wall space to hang them on. So, so having light from above rather than light from, from windows was the answer. And so he uses roof lights a lot at um, a couple of beautiful roof lights in, in, um, in Pittsanger and, and he's got a lovely way of playing with the lights in that. Oh, that's really interesting. And it's, it's quite fitting we're talking about roof lights as I believe what, what you want to talk about is your underrated underrated uh, objects for this episode. It requires the visitor to look up. Absolutely. 
absolutely. <laughs> I'm just very conscious when you walk into rooms, you often sort of, you know, you often stare at the walls all around you, but I want them to look at the ceilings in Pittsburgh, which I think are really well special. Mm-hmm. And you've picked three that you think are particularly I have, special. I have. I'm, I'm very naughty to pick three because I just think um, the whole joy of Sohn at Pitsanger is that his rooms are so different and these three are contrast so beautifully. I, I thought I really want people to make sure they look up and enjoy these, <laughs> these three ceilings. Okay. Um, can you uh, quickly describe the three of them? Absolutely. So the first one is the Tribune, which is the entrance hall to, um, um, to Pitsanger. So one of the interesting things about Pitsanga is it's a smaller building than people sometimes anticipate. It sits in 28 acres of parkland, so he could have built something huge, but he chooses to build something domestic in scale. I think that really strikes you when you walk into the Tribune, is it's not a huge room for an entrance hall, but so, so clever at playing with light and with space, that he makes it feel much bigger. And I wanted just to draw attention to the fabulous feeling of this tribune. This tribune, over time, since Sohn left Pitsanger, the whole of the interior is painted white. And this is a tragedy because it was absolutely integral to Sohn's design, the, the interior decorations he did on them. And there's no better example of this than the tribune, which is painted in a wonderful faux marble decorative scheme and when I first came to Pitsanger it was completely white and so this was completely lost and utterly overlooked and so the joy of the conservation project has been that we have been able to undertake meticulous research into the paint scheme that there was and commission some amazing um, paint specialists called Heron Humphreys to do the work and they worked out by taking tiny scalpel samples of the um, of the, of, the, of the paint on the walls. They worked out exactly what was the paint scheme underneath. And so they have recreated it. And what you get is this fabulous marbled surface with an amazing roof light in the centre. And this is now meticulously restored. And so I want everybody to make sure <laughs> as they come in, they look up and see that fabulous um that fabulous ceiling. And interestingly, you know, there's some bronze in it, and it looks as though they're bronze, um, they're bronze, carved bronze elements, but they're not, they're all painted, it's all faux, faux marbling, faux bronzing, but to create this very, very dramatic effect. I mean, that's amazing that you've found someone able to work out what it looks like underneath yes. this layer of paint yes. and recreate yes. it. And you know yes. that it's definitely what it looked like. No, that's been, been such a joy. And actually, just to prove it, um, we've asked them to leave tiny swatches of the paintwork, which shows the original sewn there, there, so that people can believe us when we say, no, we know this is what's underneath. So so in every room where we've done this, they, they, they can go back and, and take a peek just to make sure it's the original. Okay. And it, I presume this was because it would just be too difficult to take the white paint off and expose yeah. what's underneath. It, but the combination of two things, um, it would be difficult, but also it would damage the underlayer mm. too badly. So what we have done is um, taken enough samples to get back to the bottom layer to be sure we know what it is, and then be very careful to cover that up in a way that um, future conservators mm. can also go back to it and check on it, and then we've repainted it over the top. So we haven't ruined the opportunity for future people when they you know, have different techniques that we don't have to always go back to the original, but um, we have recreated it as closely as we can 
and we're pretty confident that these really are very closely to how it was in the same time. That's really interesting that you're thinking to the future and thinking about how conservation techniques could change and that, you yeah. know, in a hundred years yeah. someone could yeah. manage to do it. That's, yeah. that's really I think it's very dangerous. I think you can very easily think you've always got the best techniques because things always evolve. And interestingly, during the conservation project, um, there was one element of the conservation that had been done in 1982 and it was a very good job in 1982 but the techniques have moved on so we have had to adapt from that as well so I think when you see that you you are very conscious that you must always leave it possible for people to come back to your own work mm, mm, yeah. and and you sorry you called it the tribune what the tribune yes what, what why is it that I think because it's got um, it's got a wonderful it's got a double height so the ceiling I'm asking you to look at is quite high. Mm. It's got a double height with four internal windows in it, and they bring in borrowed light. That um, so it's another example of how how phone plays with light. It brings the light in through these windows, and these windows have um, um, are, have stained glass of a sort of amber colour, and that amber colour softens the light from being North European light, being a bit more similar to what it might have been had we been in in the bits of Italy that he loved so much. So again, it's just another example of how he he plays with the light in the way that he needs to create the effect he wants as you first walk into his house. Oh, yeah, use of, use of coloured glass, that's fantastic. Um, okay, so what, what's the next ceiling? The next one you, you walk into from um, the Tribune, uh, it's his breakfast room. And um, the lovely room faces east, so it gets the morning sunshine. And I really can imagine reading the most gorgeous room to have had breakfast in. It's a square room, but on the ceiling, Stone has done what has become one of his absolute trademark architectural styles. It's called a canopy dome ceiling, which means that it's sort of a, a gentle dome with a round oculus in the middle, so a big round circle mm. in the middle. But the whole the whole ceiling is on a gentle dome with a steep size in the corner. And we sometimes call it the handkerchief dome because it looks a bit like if you pull the handkerchief over something in four corners, you've got the four corners attaching to four pillars that hold up the dome ceiling. And it is it is so elegant and delicate and it's absolutely stunning and in that round circle in the middle she has painted an italian sky so when you're sitting at breakfast you're meant to be able to look up through this hole in the ceiling effectively out to a sunny italian sky so it might be pouring with rain and kneeling or gray as london can be but you get the sense of being outside and and it's really transportative and it, it's very, very special. Oh, my goodness. And it's, it's a style of design that he, as I say, became his trademark and he has used in, in every building he has ever done, um, whether it be a church or a house, often adapted, sometimes in a much more ornate way. There's another version of it in, in the Stone Museum in Lincoln Fields, which is much more ornate. But this is the, the sort of the paired-back version. And it is indeed the design that many, many years later inspired another designer, um, um, the person who designed the telephone box. So if you can imagine what a red telephone book looks like with that wonderful roof on it, it has that sort of canopy that's been pulled down in the four corners. That is inspired by Stone's design, this very design that you have in the breakfast room here. Oh my gosh, um, wow. So okay. we know that. We know that Gilbert Scott, when he designed the... Um, the telephone box was taking inspiration from Stone. 
So it's um, you've got to imagine when you're in the when in the breakfast room, you're in it's a bit like in the target. You're in a huge telephone box, <laughs> looking up at this wonderful, wonderful scene. So every time, not that we use telephone boxes anymore. Mm. Every time you're in a telephone box, you can also imagine that if you painted an Oculus on the top, and you could look at an Italian sky. Okay. Okay, so uh, uh, is that there's glass in the ceiling, but then a painted? No, office. it's not. No, mm. it's not glass. It's it's entirely painted. So a bit mm-hmm. like the faux marble next door in the Tribune. Mm. It's it's a trompe-l'oeil, effectively. You you're imagining you're looking up at a lovely blue sky. In fact, there's a bedroom upstairs, so you couldn't look up for it. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant! Wow, that sounds amazing, and that's so. It's just such a change in scale to go from clearly this this breakfast room ceiling to a, a phone box as well. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, gosh. And I mean, is this the kind of manor house where he'd have had lots of breakfast rooms or was this this the one? No, no. So mm. it, is, it is relatively small. But what's rather fun about this breakfast room is that um, he had sort of two big entertaining rooms and then he used the garden a lot. But then he had a, a sort of suite of rooms, which is where the breakfast room is, which was much more his domestic living quarters. And so you've got the breakfast room immediately attached to his library and then attached to his small drawing room. And that's where he would have spent most of his his living time. He used to work in the library during the day um, and um, uh, work on his plans for other buildings. But but no, so it's not a huge house. And in a way, that's one of the joys of Pitfanger is that I think many of our visitors feel when they walk in there, they feel they could move in there. I mean, obviously, it's much bigger than most of our homes, but <laughs> not in a crazy scale. It's not, you know walking you can't imagine there and several people have said to me oh, I feel I can move in tomorrow and that that's part of its attraction mm, mm, okay and then what's uh, the third ceiling then so my final ceiling is such a contrast um because it's in a wing of the house that Soden helped build but did not himself design so one of the reasons why Soden bought Pitsanger and built his manor at Pitsanger was that he had actually worked on an extension to the old Georgian house that was there before. And it came up to him and he snapped it up because he loved the idea of being able to say, look, here's the wing I worked on when I was a mere junior, but now look at what fabulous man I've been able to build myself. So he buys Pitsanger and immediately knocks down or sort of massively remodels the main bit of the house with the exception of the wing that he has worked on as a junior apprentice at the age of 15. So the third room I want to talk about is the upper drawing room, which is his main entertaining room. It's a lovely big Georgian room with a traditional Georgian um, um, plaster, moulded plaster ceiling, beautiful moulded plaster ceiling. And why this is quite fun is Soane has kept that ceiling of the very rooms he worked in as an apprentice, but he's repainted it in his own colours and massively redecorated the room. And why do I think this is so overlooked? One of the reasons is that before the conservation, the room had been decorated in a truly rather catastrophic way. (laughs) Um, This room has glorious, glorious Chinese wallpaper on its walls. But in a previous attempt at conservation, somebody had put up some some wallpaper that sort of vaguely, vaguely resembled Chinese wallpaper. It had sort of big cherry blossoms on it. But the colours of the wallpaper clashed appallingly with the moulded plaster ceiling. (sighs) And so until the conservation work, you would have walked into that room and slightly winced Mm. at it but it's 
now been restored and we've got, we've recreated the Chinese wallpaper on the walls and the ceiling has come into its own. And why I think it's so fun is that, yes, it's a ceiling that predates Sohn, although one that he, sorry, predates Sohn building at the manor, but one that he had worked on. But it has been taken back in terms of its decoration to the decoration that the, the colour scheme that Sohn had on it. And in many ways, it's very subdued. It's beautiful Wedgwood colours of blue and green. But Sohn is always eccentric, always has a sort of flamboyant side, and he's got this flourish of blood red colour that he brings out on the central ceiling rows. And that transforms it from being sort of gently in the background to a really spectacular ceiling that goes so beautifully with the, uh, the Chinese wallpaper. And um, I think it's a, a wonderful example of how he sort of puts his imprint on something even if he hadn't actually originally designed it. Okay, so the ceiling is blood red. So it's blue and green, but with a tiny, tiny element of blood red on the ceiling rose. And it just somehow pulls it all together and and brings it into play with the with the Chinese wallpaper around. Oh, gosh. And, and what, can you describe the Chinese wallpaper? Chinese wallpaper is stunning. It um, involves lots of branches of a range of different trees, not dissimilar to cherry blossom, but they're all slightly different. And then with exotic Chinese-style birds on them, so lots of pheasants, beautiful, elegant birds and butterflies. And it is absolutely stunning. And the room is on the first floor, and it has windows facing two ways, one over the front garden of Pitsang and onto Ealing Green, where Pitsang sits. And the back window looks out over its parkland. And what the Chinese wallpaper does is bring the parkland into the house. And I love it best in autumn. And the harmony between the parkland outside and the Chinese wallpaper is amazing. Mm. The Chinese wallpaper also has, um, uh, it's, it's made with a bit of mica powder. And the mica powder creates this very gentle, very subtle glisten. And as the sun moves around the house, it catches the wallpaper in a different ways. And it just has this very discreet, subtle Glow to yes. it, which is wonderful. I can I can imagine how it would feel like the outside is in. Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely beautiful. And you know, this is his country house, and I think that so many of these elements that Stone does, he's, he's doing to bring you know the the summer sky in the in the breakfast room, and and this glorious um, glorious garden of, of of exotic birds and 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 trees in the upper drawing is all about bringing bringing the outside in. Mm. It'd be such a shame if, you know, any buildings were ever, ever built on that and sort of spoilt that outside to coming in yeah. kind of view. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Okay. And and as, as I find it quite interesting that, you know, you said this is more in his personal quarters as well. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's time for him to have self-reflection on how far he's come if he's <laughs> looking at what he built as an apprentice. Yeah. Yeah, and he's a, he's uh, he is a, he is a, a, definitely a complex man, and he built Pitsanger in part. He sees and he talks about this, and he built it as a sort of as a, a sort of biography of himself to tell his story. And the fact that you can start with this bit that he you know, built when he was a mere apprentice, and and then go on to the other bit is, is, is quite an interesting bit of his character coming out in it. 
Mm. Do you know if he was as attached to his townhouse as he was to this? this oh, he must have been. He must have been. And he writes he writes a guidebook to his own house, which is quite an <laughs> intricate thing to do. And when he disinherits his son, very sadly, he then gives the townhouse to the nation. And so, sadly, you know, his falling out with his own family, which is tragic, is us, the, you know, his successes in Britain, the British public's great benefit is that we get, you know, Sir John's own museum donated to the country. So, so it, you know, we, we benefit in that way. Um, but no, I think he was very proud of both um, did. And also generous, too, in, in many ways. So he uses both Pitsanger and his townhouse to try to educate and inspire future generations of architects. He, he uses his collection entirely for that and effectively set up the first school of architecture in the UK. So it's, it's, he's very proud of it, but it's in a generous way of using it to sort of inspire people constantly to be looking at things and taking inspiration from, from what's around you. Mm, and you said he, he carried on writing about Petzhanger even mm. after he moved out. Mm, I mean, mm. I guess that must have been quite a sad process, I guess. Very sad, very sad, yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, rather sweetly, when we came to do the conservation, one of the fantastic things about Stone is he keeps everything. So we've got a wonderful archive at the John Stone Museum of, of, of a lot of his work. So when we had to do the conservation, we had that fabulous archive to refer to, whether it be conserving something that was there or reinstating something like the conservatory that had long since disappeared. But one of our challenges was when we were looking at these plans and, and this archive is occasionally on these plans, he goes way beyond and he starts talking about, um, he starts drawing the things that he hasn't done, but he's planning to do. And so one of our challenges was always working out what had, what had he actually implemented and what was just an aspiration. <laughs> so he's a man of limitless imagination and energy. Um, um, so yes, no, never, 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 never happy. I suspect he would be quite hard to work for as a builder. I suspect there would have been many times where you got to the end and you kind of said, no, that's not right. We've got to redo it. We know that the, the conservatory was an afterthought. He finished the building and had a terrace where the conservatory is. He said, no, it's not working. The flow's not working in the house and and um, I'm not making enough use of the garden and the parkland beyond. So I want to conservatory so I can get my guests out there. Mm. Then add the conservatory afterwards. Mm. I mean, he would have been working on the the build of the manor alongside what what he actually gets paid for to do. Oh um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, and he lavished a lot of money. And we've got receipts for some of the work. Mm. Um, so we're certainly lavishing um, attention. But he's also so prolific. So we know that he finally exchanged contracts on Pitsanger in September 1800. And within a week, he had already employed his um, landscape gardener to come and redo the parkland and had produced already very, very quickly lots of plans for, for Pitsanger. So no, very prolific, very um, very industrious. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you didn't get much sleep done. No, no, I suspect not a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I guess my, my final question for you is you, you've picked three ceilings. Which, which yeah. one's your favourite? That is so hard, but it has to be the tribune. It has to be <laughs> that first impact um, that he makes such a punch as you come into that room. You're not quite sure what to expect. And the effect of the marble walls around the tribune are that it's very dark at the bottom and it gets light as you go up, which is quite unusual. 
and and so I think the impact. If I can persuade you to look up at that ceiling, I don't think you'll ever be disappointed. It's an, a spectacular first entrance to a house, really setting the tone for what you're going to find beyond. <laughs> well, I look forward to being able to see it at some point when this pandemic is over. We very, very much look forward to welcoming you there. Yes, I'm missing <laughs> it terrible as, and terribly as I'm in lockdown myself. So. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a pleasure. It's been fun to revisit it in my mind.